Similarly, this psalm we're about to study today, Psalm 73, is a psalm where a man is saying, I cannot see it. I don't see the beauty. I know that it's true that God is good, but I don't really see that God is good in my life. And so what I want to do is explain that the passage is split into two halves. And then as we read it, I want you to notice very clearly the turning point. It's in verse 16. If you flip over your page in the Pew Bibles or in your Bibles, when you look at verse 16, there's a but, and at that point the whole psalm changes. So there's two halves. The first half of the psalm, if you wanted to summarize it, could be that the psalmist, his name is Asaph, as you see in the first line, a psalm is Asaph. And Asaph is walking by sight in the first half. And then in verse 16, everything changes and he starts walking by faith. Follow along as I read and see if you don't follow that outline as we read. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Oh, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I thought how to understand this. It seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have high in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. 
So did you see the contrast between verses 1 through 15 and 16 to 22? In the end of the psalm. I want to just take that two halves and look at two points. And this is an autobiographical psalm. He's talking about his experience, this man Asaph. And so the first thing I want you to notice about him is that he slipped by sight. In verses 1, 2, and 3, you see the progression. First, he knows in verse 1, truly, God is good. I know this. I believe this. But verse 2, but I almost slipped and fell. And I think this is a poetic phrase of saying, I almost lost my faith. I almost completely rejected God. Now, what's the reason for that? Verse 3, for when I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity, that's the Hebrew word shalom, one of the words that most people are familiar with. Shalom is in prosperity and peace and wholeness, and everything just seems to be good for them. So what's going on in this psalm in the first half? As he walks by sight, he's slipping of his faith in God and his trust in God. And Asaph is a leader. You should know that if you read through the Old Testament and Second Chronicles and in different parts of the Bible, it tells us that he was like a prophet, He is a song leader or a choir director, meaning that he had a a part to lead Israel in worship. So imagine Adam getting up here. He's our worship leader most Sundays, leading us in music. And him starts confessing to everyone, yeah, I don't know about this God thing anymore, guys. I don't even know if it's true. I'm looking around at the world and I see all the evil and injustice He saw the prosperity of the wicked, and he almost gave up everything. He's doubting, if you want to put it that way. Can you relate at all? Can you relate when you see celebrities, politicians, professional athletes do horrendous crimes and evil against other people, and then for whatever reason, because of their popularity, because of their money, because of some sort of in they had with somebody, they got off. And then it seems as if it didn't phase their career whatsoever. If not, they got more successful afterwards. Just this week, watching March Madness College Basketball. And it was like several different times. There's this one coach that keeps getting in trouble and in trouble. Oh, but he's winning national championships and getting top recruits and having these top-tier college jobs. Do you ever look at situations like that and say, what is going on? God, this is wrong. You know God is good, but you see with your eyes what is happening right in front of you, and you question, no, I don't know if I can hold on to this God anymore. I'm slipping. Does this describe you ever? Do you ever have doubts? Doubts about the Bible. Is the Bible really reliable? Can we trust people from oral cultures to pass down stories years after years after years? Surely they had to get something wrong. What about science? We're we're in modern times. Why are you guys praying for health? Just go to the doctor. What about evil and suffering in the world? When we turn on the news and we hear yet again of another school shooting in Great Mills High School in Southern Maryland, just where I grew up. Spent time in that high school as a high schooler. It hits home sometimes, doesn't it? Oh, wow. There is a lot of evil and suffering in the world. What about in your own life? 
your own sufferings, your own pains and struggles. Friends, let's be honest. When we are going through difficult times, it is hard for us to hold on to our faith in God. We're slipping. Our hands, they're like all greasy when that suffering comes into the world. How about some of you that are comparing your faith with other people and you're like, I don't even know if I have faith in God because I look at them and I look at me and I'm like, no way. I just just don't even know. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Many people today don't believe the Bible or are slipping because they think the Bible's just outdated. It's ethics, it's morals, what it has to say about marriage and gender and sexuality. Like, really, come on, guys, let's get with the times. It's 2018. And the reason I ask these questions is because I would like you to agree with me that all of us in this room, at one time or another, if we really sit and think about it, we often look with our eyes and slip and have doubts. Why else does this passage of Scripture exist? Can you admit and agree with us that we are not too different than Asaph? That even leaders, even church leaders, even people who are seeming like strong, faithful believers in God, that they can have doubts too? Do you have a room, category in your brain or in your faith to say that, no, the Bible is honest about all kinds of doubt? Why else does Job chapter 10 exist, as it was read earlier in the service, if not to explain that when suffering becomes severe, even the most righteous men on the earth will doubt and struggle and wrestle with God. Did you know that in Jude verse 22, a not well-known passage of Scripture, a very short passage, you can memorize it right now. Jude verse 22 says, Be merciful, to those who doubt. Both Old and New Testaments, Psalms, wisdom literature, and New Testament epistles acknowledge and explain that believers in God will sometimes doubt. So my question to us, Embassy Church, are we merciful to those who are doubting and struggling and wrestling right now? Do we as a church have a culture that allows space and room and patience and extends arms of love and mercy to those who are doubting? Is that us? Or does somebody say, listen, I I just am really struggling and I am angry with God right now with my circumstances. I know that I shouldn't be, but I am. It's just where I am. Well, you should stop being angry with God. Is that that the, the approach right away is just hammering somebody with condemnation, with guilt. They're already struggling. Or can we listen? Can we serve people well by listening to them? And hearing them out, and then ultimately, hopefully, pointing them to Psalms like Psalm 73 and say, listen, this is normal. This is normal that you might experience these things, but let me help you see how people for thousands of years, have been taking their doubts and praying them to God. Let's let's pray to God together and be honest with him about our doubts. 
I mentioned a similar point about this last week, that the Psalms are very raw in their emotions and feelings. Did you catch that yet again here in Psalm 73? Now, there are certainly extremes when I make comments like that. Last week, I tried to set guardrails and say, listen, we don't want our emotions to guide us as if that's the end-all, be-all, and let's just vent and rant. There you go. We just did it. We just ranted and vented and good deal. Or on the other side, suppressing them and acting like we don't have these emotions and feelings and thoughts and never actually dealing with them. Those are are two extremes. And, And within that, when I'm saying be raw and be honest, it does not mean that we should just say, well, I'm feeling like just cursing God and just throwing profanities at him. So I should just do that and not respect him or revere him. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about bringing our honest feelings and thoughts, but being respectful about who we're talking to when we pray to God. There's an irreverence to say, well, that's the way I'm feeling, so I'm just going to express all of my emotions however they come out. God can handle it. Now, do you see see the tension between these points? Certainly he can. Certainly that's real. But there's a way to be reverent before God and before one another. Just because you have the thought does not mean you should always say it. Look at verse 15, Psalm 73. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Do you you see what he's saying here? If I would have shared all that was going on in my mind and heart to the whole congregation of people, so imagine what I said, Adam gets up and says, guys, let me just tell you every thought I've had this week about God and how I've struggled to believe him. Like, that would not have been helpful. Like, he can do that with me in private, and we can work through that, and he can be honest. But you see that there's a context for how to say it and what to say. Adam, you're doing good? Yeah. There, there was not a conversation this week with Adam about his lack of faith in God. Just sorry to pick on you like that. But Asaph's a worship leader. But let's be merciful. Let us be a church that says it is okay that you're where you're at. But it's not okay for you to stay there. And we're going to help you see how you can deal with these emotions and feelings and thoughts and bring them to God. Asaph slipped by his sight, but in verses 16 and 17, we saw the turning point. He entered into the sanctuary. He entered God's presence. He says at first he tried to figure it out, but it seemed so futile and vain, like a wearisome task. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to think, how does this work? How does this work? So many people do that, don't they? How's God working this for good? I'm trying to, like, okay, maybe he's doing this in my life. It's wearisome sometimes to try and figure out what God's doing. But then he entered the sanctuary of God. Then he stopped trying to play God and just spent time with God. He got a new perspective, a new way to walk, not walking by, faith, by sight anymore, but now walking by faith. So, lights off again, please. What if we looked at these pictures and saw them from a different angle? Remember this one? Not very beautiful but with a little light shining on it, it looks different. Do you see how beautiful this artwork is now? The shadow there is the whole purpose of that artwork. And on certain lights and certain perspectives, you just can't even see it, but it's there. It's a beautiful piece of artwork. Next, remember this one? 
Now, maybe now you're starting to see, oh, I know what this might be. Next slide. Like, how incredible is it that people took trash and spent the time and are molding and crafting the trash, and then you put the light and the perspective, and you're like, that's, that's beautiful. That's awesome. Next picture. Remember this one, the toilet paper and the soda cans? Let's see what this is. It's a little dark, but silhouette of two people. And then lastly, the table full of soda cans. And this might be hard to see, but when you see the next picture, you'll notice that it's a city skyline. And my friends, you can turn the lights back on. I hope you see that this is, in fact, what the Bible does. This is what being near in the sanctuary does. This is what drawing near to the goodness of God's presence does. It shines light on our messy world and shows us that God is going to take our mess and work something for our good. It's what the rest of this psalm is about in part two. So we first saw in the first half that he slipped by his sight. He just could see the first picture but not with God's divine light shining through and showing that behind that picture in the shadows is something beautiful. So secondly, he was gripped by God in his presence. And I want to ask, as we see this second half of the psalm, are you open to the possibility that having a relationship with God will make all the difference in your life? Would you even consider that? Depending on where you're at, some of you might say, absolutely, I already know that's true. I can give testimony to that. I can give witness to that. I can tell you story after story about having presence of God in my life makes all the difference. Some of you might be here today and you might doubt this or be skeptical of this. And I just want you to ask or be open. I want to ask and ask you to be open to the possibility that knowing God, having a relationship with God, will make all the difference. So let's see that difference in Asaph's life. First, when you compare the first half to the second half, I think you see three things. First, he compared the foundations of walking by sight versus faith. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. This poetry here is beautiful in its arrangement. Notice that in the second half of the psalm, when you go to verses 17 and 18, that when he enters into the sanctuary of God, he discerned their end, those people that he's all jealous and envious of. And then verse 18, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. You see the play on words that he does here. Faith in God is hard sometimes. But do you know what's harder? Having no God at all. Atheism is much harder to believe. So many times atheists will throw the objections like Asaph is doing, like evil and injustice, and say, how can God exist if he is loving and good, but then evil and suffering exist? Well, he just certainly can't exist. And here's my question to any of you that have atheist friends, or if you're here today, we're more than happy and glad for anyone to come to this church gathering at any time. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're an atheist, you hate God, that's a strange thing to think. You hate God? Well, if he doesn't exist, why do you hate him so much? 
But here's, here's my really thought-provoking question for you. Is the problem of evil only for Christians? Or is it not actually a bigger problem for people who don't have a God? Think through that for a moment. Why are we calling it evil? What is your definition of a good God? Where does any of that come from? You have no foundation to make the claim that God is not good to allow suffering and evil exist because you have no definition of good. Where is your sense of morality and justice and righteousness? How can you call anything evil? What is suffering? You have no foundation to make any of those claims. So don't you see what Asaph is seeing? I could either throw it all away and just let go of God. Well, if I do that, then I am in much slippier ground. I'm going to slip all the more. And he says in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Or as it says in verse 17, when he entered the sanctuary, he discerned their end, which is explained in verse 27, perishing. This is a very, very helpful warning to every single one of us in the room. Whether you are a very religious person or you are the most unreligious person in the room. If you're a religious person, you should stop thinking that because you try so hard, that God will then prosper your life. At this church, we unashamedly tell you regularly that prosperity teaching, if you give God money and give to Embassy Church or you do something nice to somebody else, that God's going to bless you back a hundred times over with more money here on this earth. That sort of teaching. Prosperity of spiritual riches in heaven? Sure. Prosperity in relationships? Prosperity in the presence of God? Sure. But the idea that because you serve God and keep your nose clean and work really hard to be a good Christian, that that means success in this life. That teaching is what we call heresy. Awful, damaging, destructive. Makes my blood boil angry that pastors would get up and give such awful garbage and say that they're Christians and that that's from the Bible. It's not from the Bible. But here's my bigger problem, is that some of us in this church, we have a little bit of prosperity gospel in us. Even though we might amen that point, we still try really hard to be a good Christian and then we get frustrated when God doesn't bless us. So I would encourage all of us in this room to see you know, maybe there's a little prosperity gospel in us. And there's a warning here for us. Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Do you, do you see what he's saying there? I'm trying really hard, guys. I'm keeping my nose clean. I'm keeping my hands clean. I'm following all of the laws. I am obeying God, and I have a clear conscience. But there's nothing to show for it. I'm getting nothing, and all of these wicked, awful people, they're getting all of it. How many of you Christians have said, I did everything God told me to do, but it didn't work? It's not just a warning for us who call ourselves Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, there is a strong warning to you. 
Do not presume that just because you are prospering, that you are good with God. This was the point that struck me the most. How many people in our world, in our culture right now say, I don't, I don't need God, I'm good. I'm healthy. I'm relatively wealthy, especially in comparison to the rest of the world. I have electricity, I have a house, I have a car, I have a job, I have kids. Things are good. What do we need God for? We've got medicine. We've got insurance. My life is good. Do you see how futile that is? Do you see how slippery that foundation is? You might be good now, but you will not be good later unless God is your refuge, as this psalm says. If God is not our foundation, then we too will perish, as verse 27 says. So friend, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with God, I urge you to make God your foundation. Cling to him as the psalmist does. It is good to be near God. And the only way to be near God is to know that God has made access to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. There is a distance, a gap between us and God spiritually and relationally, but God has bridged the gap by coming down in the form of a human and not lording it over us and showing us that he's mighty and powerful, but showing that he's humble and a servant and he comes riding on a donkey on Palm Sunday. Not to conquer with a sword, but be conquered by the cross. And as he dies on that cross, he takes on the punishment and sin and the separation that you and I have experienced and felt and known, all the evil and suffering. He dies on the cross and rises again triumphantly three days later. After an extended period of days, he then ascends to the heavens at the right hand of the Father and he reigns as king. And the people in this room who call themselves Christians, it's not because they're prospering. It's not because they're not doubting. It's not because they've got all their questions figured out. It's not because that their life is all put together. It is because they believe Jesus Christ is king. So I urge all of you in this room, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, put your foundation in Christ as king. Set your feet on Christ the solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the first thing we notice in the second half of this psalm. The second thing we notice is that Asaph doubts his doubts. What do I mean by that? He doubts his doubts. Well, look at verse 3. What was the reason for his doubts? Envy. Jealousy. Now, after he goes into the sanctuary, look at verse 26. He was, in verse 3, desiring prosperity of the wicked. Hey, I want that too. I want a nice, comfortable, successful life and good health, good job, good wife, good everything. Verse 25, what does he want now? Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. His desires have changed. He went into the sanctuary. He entered into God's presence. He got a relationship with God and close to God. And by doing that, he's like, I don't need all that stuff anymore. I mean, it'd be nice. Who wouldn't like a nice house and nice job and nice family, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, we would take it, but that's not essential. That's not everything he's putting his hope in. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you, Christian brother and sister. Does that describe our lives? 
Are you even aiming that way? Surely none of us are there, arrived, yes. I have no desires except for God 24-7 every single moment of the day. But is that at least what you're striving for? A moment-by-moment denial of the fleshly desires and saying, no, no, there is something far superior, a greater pleasure, a greater satisfaction. It will only come if you believe that it is there by faith instead of walking by sight. So he doubts his doubts. His doubts are not simply intellectual doubts. He's doubting because he's jealous. He's doubting because he's envious, and he realizes that he was an idiot, if you want to put it that way. Or a beast. Look at verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered and when my, I was pricked to the heart, I was a brutish and ignorant beast. He's being honest. Now on the other side, I was honest before that I had some struggles and some, some fears and some insecurities. Now I'm being honest. That was dumb. I was a beast. Now that I'm in God's presence, it's all becoming clear now. What about you? Do you have reason to doubt your doubts? Do you ever have questions about the Bible, but when you dig a little deeper, you realize that's not why you're asking those questions? You know, if I could doubt the interpretation of this passage of Scripture and say, well, we don't really know, then I could do whatever I wanted to do. For example, when I was in college ministry several years ago, I had a college student come back from college and he said, I went to a philosophy class and they told me that God didn't exist and I believe him. I spent a lot of time talking with this young man and by the end of the time we were talking, he did not get converted to atheism because of philosophy. It was because he did not like what the Bible had to say about his sexuality. And so that was a convenient way for him to say, well, if God doesn't exist, well, I can just live however I want. Sometimes, when you're doubting, you should doubt your doubts. That your questions about God are not genuinely intellectual questions. They're being driven by another motive like envy or jealousy. I mean, let's just put it simply. Do you think that Asaph would have still been jealous if he was being prospered? If he was getting the riches and the wealth, do you think he'd be like, I'm so angry at you, God, for how you have blessed me so much, and those guys too. I mean, that's just, I doubt it, right? It's only when things don't go well for us. Like, oh, I don't know if I like this God guy anymore. Number three, he became convinced of the goodness of God. Notice again the parallel in verse one. Truly God is good to Israel, but I'm not so sure I believe it. I'm slipping. After he enters the sanctuary, look at verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. But as for me, it's all good. Did did you notice that the transition in verse 16 did not say, Oh, and then Asaph got blessed with lots of money and camels and a big house and a new marriage and 20 kids. And then he started praising God. Doesn't say that. It's all good. Being with God made, 
makes all the difference. Seeing things from a fresh perspective, turning the lights on, the picture shows there actually is beauty in our tears, as we sang earlier in the service. So are you, my friend, are you gripped by God in a way where you are letting him hold your hand? Look at verse 23. This is the picture I want to close out with. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. One of the most helpful illustrations about doubts and struggles and tough questions is to realize that when people come to me and ask, I don't know if I can trust God because of, and then they start explaining some awful, horrific suffering that they have gone through or they've seen in the world, and very, very rarely do I think it will be appropriate for me to start sharing why those things are working out for good. Oftentimes, my approach is to say, I don't know either. And being a Christian and following God and being gripped by God and being in his presence does not require for you to have it all figured out. It requires a humility to say, I will not have all the answers. I'm a finite, limited human being. He's the creator God. And so it's like this. Imagine a situation where I am in a dark, dark hallway, a dark building, and I have one of my young children with me. And I know where I'm going and I can see. Or if you want a different picture, imagine us in a big crowd of people and they're all squishing in on us and because I'm tall, I can see over everybody. But the little ones can't. The little child is, is feeling like, are we ever going to get out of here? And they're, they're, they're scared and they're confused and they're wondering, why am I here? They can have peace, not because they can see everything, not because the lights came on and they could see and walk by sight and say, oh, okay, daddy's not taking me down into a dungeon. <laughs> but rather, they can have comfort, they can have peace because dad reaches down and says, hold my hand. Everything is going to be okay and I'm leading you through a dark tunnel, a dark valley, a dark place. I know it's confusing, but you can trust me. The relationship between father and son, father and daughter, because they know enough about me, that should be all they need. And my friends, as our description throughout the scriptures is we are children of God, all that we need is to know enough, to have enough of a relationship to know that is the God holding down his hand and saying, hold the hand, grab the hand. Is that God worthy of your trust? Do you have enough information? Not to answer all of your intellectual questions, not to explain why that bad thing happened to you in your life, but do you have enough information to know that he is good? Do you have enough information to know that he takes bad situations and he turns them for good again and again? Do you have that information? Because if you don't have that information, it's just because you've never read the Bible ever. The Bible from beginning to end tells us that this God reaching down his hand is good and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will punish the wicked. And if you hold his hand, he will lead you through the darkness and into glory. So my question for all of us is, can you for another week, for another day, for another hour right now, can you just reach up the hand? 
Can you hold on and say, God, I, I'm struggling, I'm slipping, but I'm going to hold on to your hand, and I can't see, and I don't know where you're taking me, but I trust you. And the climactic moment, I think, that illustrates this the best in Scripture is when Jesus himself is in the Garden of Gethsemane, as it was read previously in the service. And he, too, struggled. He, too, was wrestling. God, take this cup from me. God, I'm in the darkness of feeling the injustice that's about to be brought on by the evil who are going to prosper And Jesus, metaphorically speaking, reaches out his hand and says, not my will but yours be done. And by doing so, he does not just give us a model for how we should live and walk by faith, but he actually accomplishes so that you and I could see with our sight how God takes the worst evil in the world and turns it for good. The greatest injustice, the greatest oppression against a poor and truly innocent person on the earth who had always washed his hands clean. My friends, the God that we worship here at Embassy Church, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, who becomes flesh, his name is Jesus. That is our God. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy to trust him, not just for another day, not just for another week, but the rest of your lives and for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to come now and give you thanks for your word to us in Psalm 73. We thank you that passages like Job 10 and Psalm 73 and Jude exist to say there are moments where we will slip and almost fall, where we will question and we will wrestle God, we're thankful that you give us scriptures like this because it allows us room and space and, and time for us to be honest with each other in this church and to be honest with you. I pray, God, that you would make Embassy Church a house of refuge for the doubters, a warm welcome and a merciful outstretched arm to those who are struggling. I pray, God, for anyone in this room here today that is going through such intense pains and sufferings or maybe just recently went through them. I pray that these words of Psalm 73 and the story of Scripture would help them just even for the next week. It would be food for their soul. And they would be able to have strength. God is my strength and my portion forever. Be their strength and be their portion today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.